But let's begin by enjoying a verse together. Uh, This is from Luke chapter 2. Let's read verses 51 and 52. Luke chapter 2, 51 and 52. And then we'll just uh, pray, read, enjoy verse 52. All right? Luke 2, 51 and 52. Okay, let's read. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And his mother carefully kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and in the grace manifested in him before God and man. Amen. And Jesus. Jesus. Amen. 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 Jesus advanced in wisdom. Grace was manifested in him. Amen. And man. For God and man. Amen. This morning we began to have some fellowship about this labor on raising up our next generation by looking at the responsibility of the parents. We had a message called Sanctifying Ourselves for the Sake of Our Children. Uh, You know, unfortunately, I, I made a mistake. I didn't get the outlines to the brothers. We had an outline for the meeting this morning, and I didn't realize you didn't have it. But I had it, and I have them in English and Spanish, but somehow I didn't send it to the brothers. I'm so sorry about that. What the brothers are doing, though, is they're posting them online. You can get the outlines at churchinmiami.org, and then uh, I don't know where you go from there, but language message two or message one. In fact, you could download message two right now if you want. Uh, The outlines are in PDFs, Spanish and English. Uh, Anyway, that's where you can get the outline, and I'm so sorry that I didn't have anything for you this morning. Brother? Brother, if the the saints on the devices can go right now, churchinmiami.org, on your device, your phone, and the first page will pull up is the conference that we're in right now, and you go to Message 2, Outline, and there's English and Spanish, and you can see it right now on your phone or or, uh, iPad or whatever you have, Android. Amen. Or you can look at the one that's in your hand. (laughs) which also is not formatted right, but anyway, we'll do the best we can. This morning, we had some really good fellowship 
about how the Lord sanctified himself for the sake of the disciples. That means the way he lived, the way he conducted himself, the way he behaved, everything was with the thought that there were a lot of eyes watching him all the time. And they were taking down, recording every move, every, um, every uh, word, everything. And so he had to live a particular kind of way, a sanctified way, which means he was not common. He was not common at all. Not ordinary. Not what we would use normal. He was really a God-man. He was the very first one who was the complete God and a perfect man. And he expressed in his human virtues the rich and boundless divine attributes. Within him, the rich attributes of God found no hindrance, no limitation, and no frustration. You know, everyone, every one of God's attributes are rich and boundless. God is spirit. The Bible tells us God is spirit. That means you can't see him, you can't touch him, you can't feel him, you can't smell him. You can't contact him in a physical way. And while God is spirit, on the other hand, God is rich. He is rich and boundless, immeasurable. And he's rich in what? He's rich in his attributes, in what he is in his being, what God is in his very being is immeasurable. And we call those his attributes. The four, four main ones are love and light and righteousness and holiness. And any one of those are like a universe all by itself. God's love, who can measure that? God's light, how bright is that? His righteousness, how straight is that? And his holiness, how sanctified is that? You can't, can't measure, you can't. And when God made man, he made man as a container, as a vessel in the image of every one of those attributes. God made man as a duplication of himself. In the collected works, uh, no, no, not the, the conclusion messages of the New Testament, Brother Lee has dug out 38 attributes of God. How many have you come up with? Oh, his truthfulness, his faithfulness. You know, there's so many attributes. It's what God is in his being. And when God made man, he made man in the image of every one of those attributes. You know how a glove has four fingers and a thumb? Thumb. We have 38 fingers and thumbs. <laughs> and every one of them is a container, was made to contain the rich and boundless God. And finally, when the Lord Jesus came, the triune God hand found a glove that matched perfectly. And every one of those attributes could live and move and function, could speak and love and touch without frustration, without the hindrance of a disposition or the frustration of culture or attitudes or even the fall of the flesh, the old creation. So the Lord was able to live freely in this man as he walked on the earth and we saw what a model, what a God-man.
This one was the real God-man. A God-man. Well, when Peter was describing this God-man in 1 Peter, he said that because Christ also suffered on our behalf, leaving us a model that we would follow in his steps, indicating that the Lord's life of living God in his humanity was a pattern for us, a model for us, not for us to imitate by mere imitation, but a model for us to walk in those same kind of steps. This word model means a writing copy. It's an overwriting. It's like what children use in school when they're learning how to write letters. You get this big letters and this thing and you put it down. You put a paper on top of it and you learn how to trace the letters. You learn how to write that way. And saints, we're learning how to live by putting ourselves on top of this writing copy. And we're tracing our life. One thing we should realize is that those of us who have been born of the Spirit are a God-man. Already, we have his life. We have his nature. We have his attributes. We have his, oh, marvelous life. And that we could live this life. This life is in our mingled spirit. This one is one with us. You know, before we come to a meeting like this, before I come up here, before I dare to do anything, I have to say, Lord, I'm one with you. I put myself on the cross. I stand with my spirit. I'm joined to you, and I'm one with you. This is how we live our life. And the Lord's human life was such a beautiful pattern. There's one verse I didn't refer to this morning, and I'd like to... Mention it, well, in, in Peter, 1 Peter 2.21, he goes on to say, He committed no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who being reviled did not revile in return. Suffering he didn't threaten, but he kept committing all to him who judges righteously, indicating that the Lord was eating the Father all the time. He was feeding, feeding, Breathing, breathing, constantly in fellowship with the Father. And this is how he could live this kind of God-man life. That's the model. So it's a model of eating. That's what it is. It's a model of eating the Lord. It's not a model of outward imitation. I really appreciated all the sharing this morning. I thought that was so helpful, the response of the saints. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, the Lord issues a call. In fact, in Matthew 28, it's quite interesting. At a certain point, he begins to reproach the cities. All the cities that had seen the signs and had heard the, uh, the gospel and did not receive it, he began to reproach them. And right at, at, after reproaching the cities... Matthew tells us, and Jesus answered and said, Father, I extol you. It uses the word answered, which means that while he was reproaching, 
He was fellowshipping. Because, can you do that? Reproach your children and go, Oh, Father, thank you. I extol you. Because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed it to the babies. This is, the, this is what the Lord Jesus was, I mean, what those disciples were watching. You think, how can you reproach and still be in your spirit? He was, in fact, he didn't speak one word from himself. Every word of reproach was from the Father. And so that's why it says, he answered the Father and said, Father, I extol you. Well, then right away, you know what he said? He said, come to me. Come to me. All who toil. And the footnote there is so good. The toil, you know what the toiling is? It's the toiling to be good under the, under the law, to be found approved by law keeping. You know, even ourselves, we get tired. We, our Christian life sometimes gets wearisome. We're trying to be good. We're trying to make it. We're trying to overcome. And the Lord's word is, come to me. Come to me. Toiling under the law. And another kind of toiling is the to toil to be successful in any kind of work, any endeavor. You know, I know this. We get worn out. We get success in the work. You know, you're preaching the gospel on a campus. Not too many are getting saved. And you get disappointed. Come to me. Come to me, all who toil. And I'll give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn from me. Watch me. Do what I do. Live what I live. Be like me. Just learn of me. Oh, I love that. Learn of me. He says, for I am meek and lowly and heart. Meek means he doesn't fight. He doesn't resist any opposition. And he's low. He's the lowest man in the room. He, he, he's not trying to maintain any kind of prestige or position. This was the model that the Lord's disciples were watching all the time. What a, what a picture. What a scene. And this morning we also made reference, but I just would like to strengthen it, that in John six fifty seven we really have the secret of this kind of God-man living, lived out by his believers, you and me, all of us, as the living Father has sent me. And I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, even he will live because of me. Maybe that verse is too familiar. Maybe we've read it, pray read it too many times. But that's a promise. He who eats me will live me. You eat me, you'll live me. And that verse implies that he was eating the Father. And he was living the Father. And that's how he did it. It was a kind of fellowship. So saints, this, this, this morning our outline was sanctifying ourselves. And we really burdened to show how the parents that raise up the children in the church life are models. They are patterns. Whether they like it or they don't like it, they are models and patterns. And the children will become what we are. They will, they will become our reproduction. 
And so this was a word as a kind of an encouragement for us to realize who we are. When we see that we're a God-man, that is the beginning of a God-man life. Uh, How powerful is that? Last week in uh, Jacksonville, a verse that was so precious, one sister read it this morning, was from 1 Thessalonians 1.5, where it said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, even as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We didn't just preach words. It didn't come in word only. It came with impact, with power. It hit you, knocked you down with power. And it brought you into the Holy Spirit. And it also was with much assurance. No question, no doubt that what we spoke was the truth. And then he said, even as you know what kind of men we were, it's the kind of men that can have that kind of gospel message, that could preach that kind of gospel, have that kind of an effect, requires that kind of men. And what kind is that? That was God-mankind. Amen. It was Paul and Silas, Luke, and a little co-worker named Timothy, a young brother they had just picked up and brought along with them. And they came into that place and they were a pattern. And in, in Thessalonians, it says, and you became imitators of us. That's the very next verse. What kind of men we were? And you became imitators of us. That should be normal. That's normal. So that even we didn't have to, have to say a word to anybody. All of Achaia heard about you. Became a pattern. And he said, you became imitators of us. And then he says, so that you became a pattern. So my, what we need in the church as saints are patterns, models, examples of this kind of living. So precious. Well, tonight what we do, and I've been kind of promising this all along the way, that we would like to come to some matter related to the children's work. And again, I have to do a little review Uh, A fellowship we had in Tampa a few nights ago, we shared that there are three principles and two lines. And in Jacksonville, we covered the two lines, and this weekend we'll be covering the three principles. The two lines are this, and I'll start with the two lines. As we have, I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit here, because now we're going to be talking about the children in the Lord's recovery. Oh, hallelujah for the children. You want to hear about the children? Uh, you know, maybe I, I should just testify a little bit to you. Um, <clears throat> I began to be, I was responsible for a class in the full-time training, Saturday morning class, children and young people. And it's a first-year class. And we were, uh, myself and another brother were quite bothered that we did not know what to teach. I mean, what do we, what do we teach? I mean, what do we do in this class? And so we, we decided that we would not speak anything except what we could dig up from the ministry. And we went on this very intense publication search. Before there were search engines, 
we were turning every page of every book to look for a paragraph, to look for a phrase, a page, a comment where Brother Lee would make reference to the children in the Lord's recovery or the parents or the family or the young people. And after a while, we collected quite a stack of papers. And then we began to, of course, organize it and arrange it into lessons and outlines. And ultimately, that's what became this book, uh, Raising Up the Next Generation, which is now the book we use in that class. Uh, but that's how we went about it. And while we were doing this kind of research, we were doing this kind of uh, desperate search to find out how did the brothers, Watchman Nee and Brother Lee, lead the churches to carry out this kind of work, how did they tell us? What did they say? What did they consider was important? And from that, we, we saw there are two very strong and distinct lines. Sometimes we refer to them as pillars. You know, when they built the temple, there were these two big pillars in the front. And these two pillars were quite outstanding, so much so that they gave names to them, Jachin and Boaz. <laughs> First thing you see when you walk up to the temple is, my, do you see those pillars? Bronze, you know, so tall, so big. This is what our children's work should be like. So as you walk up, you go, Wow. Pillar number one. You ready? We have to work on them in the children's work so that they would become the seeds of the gospel when they enter into junior high school. They would be gospel seeds. Seeds of the gospel. This phrase, seeds of the gospel, gospel seeds, became electrified because... We saw it again and again and again. It seemed like nearly every time Brother Lee talked about children's work, he said, he said this, that they would become the seeds of the gospel. And at first I was quite resistant. I didn't think that that would work. I didn't think that that was so possible. So I wasn't so open. But at a certain point, the Lord really turned me, and I really opened up to this and realized this is really true. This is amazing. That the children's work is a big, he, in another place he said, the children's work is a big gospel work. Who would have thought? In Taipei, Taiwan, in 1967, he charged the elders and the uh, co-workers there to get 10,000 children into their children's meeting. Imagine that. You have to listen to the messages uh, from uh, Jacksonville, because we fellowship this quite detailed, he wanted them to get 10,000 children into the children's work in Taiwan, Taipei, and the rest of Taiwan, another 10,000. That's a big number. Well, they, he figured at that time they had maybe 4,000, and he said, go get, get 10,000 from your neighbors, from your classmates, from your relatives, from some saints who had become disappointed and fill up your children's meeting with numbers, numbers. And then through the children, we'll contact their siblings, we'll contact their families, and we will have a, a tremendous increase. He compared it to all the efforts that we had done for so many years in our gospel preaching. How much money, how much time, how many efforts we had spent to gain the increase. He said, if you get 10,000 children every year, Maybe you won't get all 10,000. 
You might get 80%. You might get 60%. But eventually, you'll be baptizing over 100 people, 100 children every month. Every, every month, there'll be hundreds being added to the church, far beyond what you could imagine if you just did gospel labor by just focusing on the children, your gospel work on the children. So, you know, maybe uh, in the future, if the Lord would give us some time, we could drill down on this particular aspect a lot because there's so much to, uh, to develop uh, through the neighborhood children's meetings, through the children's meeting in the church. Well, let me say this. The, the situation in Taiwan at that time was very low. There had been a, t- a terrible turmoil that had devastated the church for eight years. The number before that was about 40,000. Can you believe that? They had the immigration crisis from mainland China, those fleeing from the revolution, from uh, the communist takeover. They were so scared, unsettled, lost everything. And they received the gospel, thousands, thousands. And they were meeting in groups, in small groups, in homes. And they were having the church life like that. And they were gaining them as solid remaining fruit. But then after Austin Sparks had come there the second time, Austin Sparks opposed the ground of the church, disappointed uh, with the way they were carrying out their church life. And so many of Brother Lee's co-workers, young co-workers, were negatively influenced and began to oppose and undermine. And these were the ones that were bearing great responsibility in the children's work, in the campus work, in the young people's work. And after eight years, finally they left, and the church was devastated. Maybe 2,500 were meeting. And so you could say it was like scorched earth. It was like the thing is completely flat. There's nothing. And Brother Lee's prescription, 10,000 children. To me, it's just the long-term view, the kind of thought, let's grow a new crop, Let's start over. It's like that. It's like, go get children. In 10 years, they're going to be brothers and sisters. We have to work like this, with that kind of view. Many times as I travel, I, I come to places, and I notice that we're an aging. Old, we're getting older and older year after year. And this is our salvation. Go get children. Get 10,000 children. Maybe for Miami, it's not 10,000. But maybe it'd be 100 or 200. And then you work on them. And you cherish them. You nourish them. You build them up. You contact their families. You get their brothers and sisters. And pretty soon, in 10 years, the whole demographic of the church has changed. All of a sudden, it's a young church. It's fresh. It's, it's new. It's young. Yeah, it's precious. This was Brother Lee's thought. This was his thought. This is one line, saints, and this needs a lot of fellowship. We have to pray a lot. We have to consider. We have to be careful. We don't want to start any kind of movements. We don't want to do stuff that would be disruptive or discouraging to the saints. But I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, this is, this is an aspect of the work that has still yet to be worked out everywhere. Um, children's work is a big gospel work. He said, before we just did all our preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, it never occurred to us that the children's work is a big gospel work. 
That's pillar number one. That's the first line. The second line that we saw is when he was asked, what do we teach the children? What should we do? We've gathered them. We have them for two hours. We, we have them, you know, Lord's Day morning. The saints are coming. They're bringing their children. We've got to take care of them. What do we do? And the sisters would ask him, what should we teach? I was sharing with the saints. This is in Gainesville. What, what do we teach? And he said, don't teach. And so I could just imagine the sisters are all going, amen. Okay, yeah, don't teach. Got it. So, okay, well, what do we tell them? And then he says it again, don't teach. And finally, he says it three times, don't teach. I was reading this transcript of this dialogue going back and forth. And I'm laughing to myself because he knew they wanted to teach. He just knew that they just couldn't wait to get their little hands on these little lives and begin to teach them all kinds of Bible stories and lessons and and teach and teach and teach, and these poor little kids would be teached to death. <laughs> they just get their heads packed with all kinds of information they don't need to know. So finally, when he answered them, he said this, and he said this at least ten times. We read over and over again in the ministry. He said, you have to build them up in their humanity to be proper human beings. And then he'd add modifiers to that. Sometimes he'd say you have to tell them how to honor their parents, love their brothers and sisters, respect others, not steal. He'd he'd define it a little bit. But he said it again and again. Build them up in their humanity to be proper human beings. So now if you've heard that once or twice, build them up in their humanity, and now you're having to explain that to someone, what does that mean? Build them up in their humanity... Man, I have no idea what that means. How would you do that with children? Build them up in their humanity. Oh, then he used terms like uh, ethics and morality. Right and wrong. Oh, all kinds of these kind of words. And so we were seeking. Brother Lee, you know, Brother Lee's not with us anymore, so we can't ask him. But we had to read and read again and read these messages over and over again. What does it mean to build them up in their humanity, to be proper human beings? On the outline we had in Gainesville, there was a point that said this. It says, because many young people have been damaged with respect to their character, it is because of this that we have to do a children's work for the children. Think about that. Today, many young people have been damaged with respect to their character. You look around, everyone, there's no vessels, there's no containers, there's no humanity, there's no character. Everyone's damaged. Everyone lies. Everyone steals. Everyone cheats. Everyone's immoral. Everyone's, there's no, no normal humanity, there's no fabric left. There's no proper humanity. That means there's no vessels Broken vessels. There's no vessels. And then he said, it is because of this that we have to do a children's work with the children. And that was very helpful to understand. It's because we want to prevent damage. We have to work on them first so that before they become damaged, 
by society, by the education system, by the social norms, by the liberal philosophy, they could be built up in their humanity to be a proper human being. That's the second pillar. Okay, so tonight's meeting and tomorrow morning's meeting, we're going to be on this. And we'll try our best to cover this in a more, most thorough way, give you an impression. What is it? What is it that we want to put into these kids? What do we want to do with them? What it has to do with is, is molding them. It's shaping them. It's like they are a lump of clay in our hands and we are, we have them while they're soft and still moist and flexible, we can mold them and we can shape them and we can shape certain virtues. Remember the virtues that match the divine attributes? We mold these virtues into them, impress them deeply with certain kinds of characteristics. Then when the Lord comes into them to be their life, the hand goes right into that glove and can live freely in that young child. Okay, those are the two lines. Obey gospel work and build them up in their humanity. You could say that the first line, the gospel work, has to do with something outward. It has to do with their habits, their concept, their behaviors in reaching out to their friends and inviting their friends. The other line has to do with what we're doing to them inwardly and how we're shaping them to one day be a God-man, a container of the boundless rich Christ. Okay, so let's, you have an outline? <laughs> English and Spanish, I hope you have an outline. I'm sorry, your outlines don't have numbers or letters, just dots. That's my fault again. I need to be built up in my humanity. <laughs> Message two, compiling children's lessons that build up a proper humanity and lead the children into a proper enjoyment. Okay, now we're, we're just going to start by reading through this outline. It provides some definition. I hope this is okay. I hope this is uh, enjoyable for you. When we speak of the children's work, we are referring to children who have not graduated from elementary school but are more than five years old. These are the target of our children's work. Okay, Brother Lee defined that the children's work would be a, a line like this. And if you have a child that's zero here and 25 here, somewhere about the middle is 12. Okay, and about here is five. Now, our children's work, the kind of work that we're talking about, about molding and shaping these lives, begins somewhere around here. You know, you could cheat a little bit, maybe four. And it goes to about 12. And you know, at 12 years old, did, did I mention that this morning about being a son of the law? I didn't mention, oh, okay. In the footnote in Luke 2, where we were reading... You know, the Lord Jesus went into the temple and was discussing with those scribes and uh, teachers at 12 years old. 
And the footnote in 12 years old there tells us that when a child reaches 12 years old, according to Jewish custom, they became a child of the law. And that means they became accountable for their behavior before God and man. At 12 years old, they're old enough to know right from wrong. You could say that if he's 10 and he's li- he lies, you say, oh, he's a kid, you know, all the kids lie. But when he's 12, no, now he's, he's, uh, he's responsible before God and man for his behavior. That means he has to bring a turtle dove or a pigeon, some kind of offering, and he has to uh, atone for that. And so this was, of course, a legal thing with the Jewish people. We're not legal. We're not going to be strict about this. We're not going to make a rule or a law. But it gives you an indication that typically in child development, as a child matures, by the time they finish elementary school, they have a pretty good idea, right and wrong, and they can be responsible for their conduct and behavior before God and man. So I like this. I think this is a a smart uh, kind of... Definition. This is where, this is our children's work, right right in here. Uh, okay. The first principle concerning the children's work is that it's a time of preparation. We like to use this word prepare. We're preparing vessels. So we would call this preparation. The verse we like to use is 2 Timothy 2.21. If anyone cleanses himself from these, he will be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared unto every good work. Saints, what this means is that we have about six or seven years where we can do a kind of preparation to prepare vessels. It's preparation. We're not filling them. We're not just educating them. We're not teaching them. We're shaping them. Shaping vessels. Preparing vessels to receive the Lord. One day, the Lord will come in and live in them. And we'd like to prepare the vessels. This is really crucial. You'll see it on the outline. Uh, this word prepare. Uh, okay, come to point A. In Christianity, doing the children's work is considered to be like operating a school, hence, it is called Sunday school. Often, when Brother Lee would speak about these kind of things, he would start by saying what not to do don't do this. You know, like, what do we teach him? Don't teach. He'd always start by what not to do. And again, we found this three times, at least three times, where he said, in Christianity, we always did a Sunday school work. Well, saints, in America, we have, this country is a Christian country with a very powerful Sunday school culture. I almost, almost can't avoid it. Even in us, in the Lord's recovery, we came out of the denominations. We came out of Christianity. But as soon as we started a children's work, it really was like a Sunday school. And so he said, don't do Sunday school. Don't do Sunday school. 
And again, our minds were like, huh? We don't get that. What do you mean? Don't do Sunday school. So let's read these points, and it should become clear. Point one says, in the Sunday school classes, they may use textbooks. We do not agree with this method. We feel that our children's meetings should not have the flavor of a Sunday school. Okay, in that point, you have three words. You probably should underline them. First one is school. Our children's work should not feel like a school. It should not feel academic. It should not have that kind of feeling that we're teaching and learning and uh, passing from grade to grade. It's not a school. We have that song, it's not a school or factory, huh? We love the church life or splendid church life. It's not a school. Do not, don't be the teacher standing up in the front and the students are all there and don't you know I'm the teacher and like that. It shouldn't have that feeling. Not like a school. The second word is classes. There are all kinds of classes. We have the first grade class and then we have the second grade class. Have the third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Later on, you'll see, he suggests we have three levels. Well, you say, well, those are classes. Not like the school classes. The third word that's in this point is textbooks. A set curriculum. We have a first grade curriculum. Second grade curriculum. We, we had this. I mean, we had this for years. We had these two big binders. And we had the lessons for the first grade. We had the lessons for the second grade. And, and because we're very much like this, we think, well, how can our poor little first graders go on to the second grade lessons if we don't cover the first grade lessons as a prerequisite, you know? So we get stuck on this curriculum. And his thought was, absolutely, we don't need textbooks. We don't need classes. And it shouldn't feel like a school. Okay, so now we're, we're taking things out. We're throwing things out the window, huh? Okay, well, what's left? What's left? We don't have classes. We don't have teachers. We don't have, we don't have textbooks. Let's, let's hang on. <laughs> Just hold on to the bar. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <clears throat> Point two, from our experience, we feel that if we regard the children's work as a school and teach our children from textbooks, it will be of more harm than benefit to them. This method educates the children with premature knowledge. Later, when the children grow up, they will not be very open to listen to the truth. Have you ever noticed young people not very open to listen to the truth? They've heard it all, yeah. Brother Lee, what should we do? What should we do? That's all we know how to do. So today, we're going to wipe the whole slate clean. We're going to erase the board, and we're going to look at something fresh. When Brother Lee said it's all in the books, he really meant it. It is really all in the books. Point A, little a, this method educates the Oh, I, I read that. Little b. The children hear too many Bible stories in Sunday school, and their hearing becomes dull. When they grow up, they will not be moved by what they hear. So they're not open, and they're not moved. This is some of the 
sad side effects of a Sunday school kind of children's work. Hence, the material that we prepare for the children's work should not be influenced by the material used in the Sunday schools in Christianity. Not only should we not use their material, we should not even reference it. You know, I get emails quite frequently from saints that have found this website here or this homeschool character building website there and they say, you know, what do you think? Can we use this? And all I know is Brother Lee said we shouldn't even reference it. You know what that means? That means we have the richest saints. We have it. We don't need to go scuba diving or, or uh, for stuff. We, we have a lot. And as soon as as we get through this, you'll see how we could build up the children and their humanity. And there is nobody that has this concept. No one has this thought. No one has the foresight like this. When I first came to the church life in Los Angeles in 1970, and uh, fellowshipping with those who were serving with the children, children's meeting, they would say things like this. Brother Lee told us we should just teach the children character. Just teach the children character. But I don't think they even had the right kind of thought. Because he didn't say just teach the children character. He said build them up in their humanity. And so uh, over the years, we have gotten a crystallized kind of understanding of what that means. Let's keep reading. Point B, now he begins to tell us what? We should begin by teaching the children how to be a proper human being. We should show them that man is different from the animals and different from the trees, plants, and flowers. Okay. <laughs> we should teach the children that man is different from the animals. <laughs> we have one lesson. It looks like this. Man is different from the animals. Man has a spirit. <laughs> Turn to your spirit. <laughs> and then what do we do for the rest of the time? We don't know what to teach them. Okay, let, let me fellowship something with you. What makes man different from the animals? What makes us different from the trees, the plants, the flowers? And how do you make that into lessons for children? What is it that makes us so special? In God's creation, there was no creature, no creation like a man, like humanity. It was the top item. It was the most awesome item because it was made in the image of God. It bore God's image and likeness. It was a replica a duplication of God. Earlier I said this. God is rich in his attributes. And for every one of his rich and boundless attributes, when he created that vessel, man, he created a virtue within that humanity that would manifest and express the rich attribute of God. So man and God were like a hand and a glove. That's what makes us different from the animals. It's the virtues. It's all those human virtues. 
Again, if we would look at the example of the Lord Jesus, as he was walking on the earth, as he was living out God in his humanity, when God was able to live through him, there was one particular virtue that was most outstanding. When you want to live a life of a God-man, this virtue will be your experience. It's number one, it's compassion. That's what he felt all the time. You read it again and again. He's moved with compassion. He saw the multitudes. They've been following me for three days. They haven't eaten. And I have compassion for them. Get them something to eat. The disciples said, we have nothing to feed them. He said, so what do you have? Bring it to me. He fed, he fed them. When he saw the leper, he had compassion. The blind man, he had compassion. He saw the funeral, he had compassion. A God-man has compassion. Compassion is the most beautiful human virtue. It's the top one. Compassion means this, that you enter into and you feel the suffering and, and misery of humanity around you. You're surrounded by multitudes and it hurts. It bothers you. You're uncomfortable because you feel their misery. The Lord felt their misery. That is tremendous. Who today? Who has, who has that virtue? Nobody. Everybody is just self-absorbed. It's all about me. I'm not happy. I'm bored. I'm tired. Uh, I don't have any money. You know, feed me. Fix me. But there's, there's people. There's Godmen walking around. And they, they're moved. They're moved. They, they, they're out of themselves. And they touch the suffering of humanity around them. Isn't that an awesome virtue? The second part of that of, of the definition of compassion is that they take steps to solve people's misery. He raised the dead, the son. He fed the multitude. He, he healed the leper. He solved their problem. That's compassion. Not only you feel it, but you take steps to solve it. In today's society that is so self-centered, so self-absorbed, it's impossible for you to feel compassion. Unless you're a real God-man. You see these refugees flowing into Germany. You look at those pictures on CNN. It's just moving. It's just absolutely moving. People destitute. Lost everything. Lost family members. Killed, murdered, raped. With nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we have... Do we have a heart for this? Do we have a thought for this? Do we have any feeling about this? Compassion. Compassion is what we feel. That being the top human virtue that expresses the rich and boundless love of God. You see, when God's love, the love of God, can enter into a man and live through this man, he comes out in many ways. It's like light hitting a prism it shines out as compassion and sympathy, as forgiveness, as kindness, love, tenderness. All of that is the rich attribute of the love of God expressed in humanity. You know, there's a tremendous illustration. We fellowship this in Gainesville. It's kind of a funny thing, even how I remembered this. Uh, my older brother, Joe... When he was about fourth or fifth grade, 
he had a science project that he had at school. And the science project, and I don't even know how he thought it up, and I, maybe my dad helped him or whatever, but what they did is they made this long box. It was about this long. It was about one foot by one foot, long and skinny. And it had two, uh, three, three compartments. And uh, he put a hole in, in this side and a flashlight. And this was all black and painted inside. It was all black and all black. There were these compartments. And then there was a hole through there, and there was no hole over here. So when the light came on, the light shone through, but didn't hit anything, but in this, you know, until it hit the end. And the science project was this, that light is invisible. I don't know if you know this, but light is invisible. So you'd look in this little compartment, and you got the light on, and it's black. It's just pitch black. But then you look in this hole, and it's bright. It's light. Because light needs to hit something in order to be seen. Light is invisible, just like God. You could look at God. You could just look at God. You'd never see him. But when he hits a man, when he gets to live in humanity, it's like that. So he made man like that. So that when the light would come in, it would like this. Okay? Isn't that good? God is light, and he's seeking expression. Imagine God so rich and boundless, yet nobody knows him, can see him, can touch him, can understand him, can experience him, until, until he can get into a man, and then they can touch him and feel him and see him and experience him. Through you and through me. So we realize our children's work is to prepare these vessels with some certain kinds of virtues like that. Say, say a lesson, maybe a month of lessons on compassion. And you show it from this angle and you show it from that angle and you give examples and you tell stories and you give lessons about what it looks like so you know what? Those of us who are quote, quote, teachers have to become really good at inspiring them to the uttermost. We give them a, a, uh, an example, a story that shows someone who was full of compassion. And you might use the Lord Jesus, which would be great, but it might be better if you used yourself. This is what happened, and this is what I was feeling, and And this is what I did. And then you might give another example about someone who, maybe yourself again, when you encountered something and you just walked on by and you didn't do anything. And then you say, what kind of person do you want to be? The one that has compassion or the one who has no compassion? And you just inspire them. Man, when they're done with that class, they're like pumped. Ooh, ooh, I'm going to be the most compassionate person ever. They're just so fired up, you know. They're just, and you do that with compassion and sympathy and forgiveness and kindness and care and love. You do it with forgive, you know, apologizing, even apologizing. Man, I'm going to apologize to everybody. Well, I think some of us, all we need to be in those classes, huh? 
patience and you know, whatever. I, actually, we need to come up with a hundred of these virtues. Mind when the light comes in. Okay, we better keep going, huh? Now, okay, the point was this. We have to teach them that man is different from an animal. Do you think an animal could feel compassion? Don't you think that's special? (laughs) Okay, let me read you a verse. I I challenged the saints in Jacksonville. We have to read the New Testament again and again and again because there's so much stuff in here. That is really good. Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36 says this. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Well, that's not really lending, is it? If you don't expect anything in return. For your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Isn't that a good verse? Back in the day when I was, I better not say this, I was thinking when I was serving young people, I thought, hmm, be kind to the unthankful and evil. Hmm. (laughs) But they're not really evil. But they may be unthankful. Then the next verse says, sorry, young people, uh, you might be listening, yeah. Verse 36, be full of compassion, even as your father also is full of compassion. Isn't that good? That's, a, that's, that's okay, we just gave you a lesson and a, and a memory verse, didn't I? Okay, so you're on your way. Now you know what to do tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Where am I? Okay, we're, we're teaching them different, man are different from the animals. After this, we should speak of man's character and conduct. We should teach the children to honor their parents and be loving, pure, obedient, honest, and proper in their conduct. How many lessons are right there in that point? Loving, pure, obedient, honest, and proper in their conduct. Now look at this next phrase. Now you're going to be on the test. We must be careful not to give them a religious thought or concept. Don't give them a religious thought. Don't give them religious concepts. So what does that mean? Do you know what that means? What would be a religious thought? What would be a religious concept? I mean, these are the kind of things that we were wrestling with all the time. We just, some of us, we make the children very religious. I don't know what it is about us. We just do that. We just, you know what's religious is when things have to be done in a certain order, certain way. You know, when we come to the meeting and someone has to call a hymn and then someone has to lead the singing and then someone has to do this, that's when things become religious is it becomes formal and regular and routine. And we could also give the, young, the children a, a religious concept because we have to do things in a certain way. When I was a child, 
um, in Sunday school, they, you know, we, we'd come in and sit down and we'd put our Bible under, the, under our chair. And the teacher would say, no, 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 don't put your Bible on the ground. Well, it's like the American flag, you know, you never let it hit the ground. It's like disrespectful. That's the only thing I could uh, uh, apply it to is like it's the American flag, you know, you, you never let it touch the ground. I came to the church, a brother threw his Bible down, he goes, we stand on the word of God. <laughs> I went, oh! <laughs> They're going to die. <laughs> I think some of these kind of things we could give the children a religious concept. You know, another thing that we sometimes do is we, we tell them, that if they obey their mother, this will make the Lord happy. And if they don't obey their mother, mm-hmm, that makes God not happy with you. I don't know if that's such a smart thing to do. That's like a religious concept. Do you have any, any thoughts what religious concept might be? Have you, have you taught kids religious things to be... Well, let's go on. We get this point comes up again, so we'll, we'll just continue. When we speak of the difference between man and the animals, we can mention that man was created by God, and also that the heavens and the earth were created by God, and a little about how man was created in God's image. We do not need to say more than this. Okay, saints, so that's why I talked about man being created in God's image, because that's the thought within our brother, is the human virtues created to match or to express the divine attributes. That's how we teach man is different from the animals. Now, let me, let me put something on the board here, because in our, uh, and we'll see this tomorrow, it'll all, it'll all kind of fit together, and I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. But we realize there are three crucial matters that we have to get into the children when they're little, when they're young. During this period of time, it's like we have this closing window of opportunity to infuse them with certain thoughts. The first one is that there is a God. There is God. There is an almighty one who is God. They have to get it. Every lesson is not... The doctrine of the existence of God, it just assumes there's a God. No matter what you're talking about, compassion or forgiveness or kindness, it's all about God. It's God, 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 God. Do you know that these kids from kindergarten to the last day of graduate school is going to be challenged on the existence of God? It'll be mocked and ridiculed and challenged. And we get in early. We get in first, and we get in strong. God did that. God made that. God designed that. God. God. Oh, he's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's powerful. He is God. God is love. Uh, God, everything, God. So the kids come out of class, it's just God. Yeah, God. Amen. God did that. I heard this. You know, some saints were doing this, and, and one night his, this dad was laying on the grass, in his yard, and they were, him and his boys were laying there, and they're looking up at the stars, 
And his boy said, Dad, God did that, huh, Dad? Yeah, that's right. That's great. I mean, he just volunteered that. They're watching the stars, and he goes, God did that. That's right. That's the first thing. Have to get in. Number two is creation. This point also mentioned creation. You know, um, Romans chapter 1 tells us that the invisible things of God, his divine characteristics and his eternal power, are made known by the things that were made, so that they are without excuse. Every item of God's creation witnesses of God, tells us God. And it tells us what kind of God he is. You know, if you have an artist and these people that study art, you can tell the artist by what he makes. He, he expresses his, his inner being by his art. And creation has got to be the greatest art. But when we teach creation, we often go right to the doctrine. On the first day, God said, let there be light. On day two, he separated. And that's the only way we know how to teach creation. But let me introduce a new thought to you. We should teach creation altogether, not in a doctrinal way. We have to teach the wonder of creation. The items. You have a billion items of creation, and any one of them could be a children's lesson to show them that there's a God. Who designed that? Who made that? Who painted that? You could talk about an insect with their features. So fine. You could talk about DNA. Probably if they're a little older. Or you could talk about the stars, about flowers, trees, plants, all kinds of animals. So you're not limited to the doctrine. You're, you're showing them that there is a God who made everything. Okay. That also will be challenged in school. From the first day to the last, we get in first. You say to your kids, could that just happen, really? It's too perfect. It's too round. It's too, too scheduled, too steady. It's too perfect. It's too balanced. It couldn't just happen. It couldn't happen. God did that. God did that. Why did he do that? He loves you. That's why he did that. You know? So now we got lessons on God. We got lessons on creation. And the third item that we uh, teach the children is what we call the preciousness of humanity. And this is when we bring out all of the positive virtues created within the human vessel. You know, in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, it says, the Gentiles who have no law are a law to themselves, their conscience bearing witness with them. What that means is that even unbelievers have a conscience that matches the image of God. They know it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong. Gentiles often have a high humanity, a proper kind of living, even without knowing the Lord. It's because it was created in the vessel. It was created that way. 
And so all we're doing is we're bringing out the rich virtues created within the human vessel. Okay. Point C. In caring for young children, we must be careful not to make them religious. Not to pass on mere religious knowledge. Here we go. Here we have that point again. And not to tell them too many Bible stories. Furthermore, we should not force them to pray. If we practice these matters, we will be successful. Okay. Careful not to make them religious. Again, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I think we might just know when we're making kids religious. My oldest granddaughter, uh, her parents put her into this Christian school. And while we were putting all these things together, and we'd have dinner at their house, or we'd be together with them, and some of the ways that she behaved, and I hope she never hears this recording, she was just like this religious little girl. And I don't even know what it was. I don't know. It was maybe the way she sang or the way she did this or that. Maybe the way she prayed. It just, it just had this religious kind of flavor to it. We have to be careful not to just make really good, goody-goody religious children. We're not for that. That's not what we're doing here. I don't know how to describe that. He says we shouldn't force them to pray. Praying should always be something you know, voluntary. Okay, point D. The first thing we should do with elementary age children is to help them know how to be persons with a proper humanity. We must help them to know what a proper humanity is and how to behave as human beings. At first, we should simply help them to grow up as proper persons with the full understanding and realization of what a proper humanity is. Are you tired of these two words, proper humanity? It's just over and over. What is... This means that we focus very heavily on behavior and conduct, on habit, on right and wrong, ethics, morality, things like this. To this end, we can have many lessons and use demonstrations and illustrations. We can bring a small animal or some flowers and talk about the difference between man and these things. We must also help them to know how to honor their parents, love others, and know the proper elements of human morality, such as humility, patience, and kindness. See, even this outline is full of... Lessons, yeah, you could, topics. In this way, we can build them up as proper materials for the Lord's use. Now, look at this next phrase. This is powerful. To receive the Lord and enjoy him requires us to have a proper humanity as good material. This is why we do this with our children. Because for them to receive the Lord... And for them to enjoy the Lord requires that you have to have some 
kind of humanity. Sometimes we preach the gospel to some people that were not, not proper. They had problems with uh, drug abuse or addiction. And they would repent and turn to the Lord. But the vessel was not able to really enjoy the Lord and to grow and advance. And so it became tragic because we couldn't help them. We couldn't help them to receive the Lord and enjoy the Lord. There has to be a vessel there. There has to be some humanity there. Point five, within the six years of the elementary age, there are about 300 Lord's Days to build up the children in their human character. It is very helpful for us to do this. So from here to here, we have about 300, actually about 300 to 350 Lord's Days, 350 lessons. So we don't have time to waste on things that don't matter. You know, the old way of doing things. So let's come to Roman 2, the next big point. How about you all read that? <clears throat> to compile... Elementary, intermediate, and advanced. Okay, so our brother suggested that when we do this... Uh, okay, I'm going to erase my, my words. I'll, I'll try to refine that, because I will need that tomorrow. We have... One level is like four to six... Elementary. Then we have 11, uh, a level that's 7 to 9. And then we have the third level, which is 10 through 12, something like this. Here you have the elementary, intermediate, and advanced. And so our lessons are like this. They are on a certain trajectory. There's a certain pathway that they're leading you on. The material for the elementary level should be entirely from a child's perspective. We should tell them that man is not the same as the animals and explain to them why man is different. Okay, so this is the elementary level. Very simple, all together from their perspective. In the intermediate Gradually, as we proceed to the intermediate level, we can give the children a little more Bible knowledge. We can convey to them a deep impression that there is a God in the universe. You see that? God? Uh, that man fell and committed sin and that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. Tomorrow we'll talk about how that happens. We do not, need, we do not have to give too much doctrine, but we should impress them with the facts in the Bible. Then when the children proceed to an advanced level, they will almost be ready to follow the messages in the big meetings. The children do not need too much doctrine. They only need a general knowledge of the truth. 
This requires the careful work of the brothers who compiled the teaching material so that the children do not receive premature knowledge. Okay, so this is our kind of our understanding is that at this level, you're just inspiring them. It's just pure inspiration. To be good, to behave, to obey, to be kind, to forgive, to apologize, to whatever it is. You're just, and you're showing them pictures. You're presenting patterns of different ones. Well, let, me, let me tell you a story. I, I've told this story before, but let me tell you the story. This happened in Mexico City when a leading brother came to the meeting one Lord's Day morning and there was no teacher in this one level. And it was the seven and eight-year-old boys. And there was about eight or nine of these boys and they were naughty and, they, and their teacher didn't show up. And we have this kind of situation happen from time to time. And so this brother who's a leading one, elder and also one of the co-workers, he had to take the class. So he goes into the room, and the boys are real restless. And he says, I'm going to tell you a story about a whale. So they kind of perked up. So they sat down, and he goes, this is a true story about a whale who got caught in a net, a fishing net. Fishermen had put out their nets and were catching fish, and then the net got loose, and the whale swam into it and was... Actually, the whale was drowning because he couldn't swim to the surface to get air. And it was all caught up in him. And so the people noticed this whale struggling to survive. And they called the, you know, the rescue people, I don't know, the Greenpeace or whoever it is that rescues, save the whales people, you know. And, and so they came out there in a boat and they had four scuba divers and they were contemplating, should they go into the water and cut this whale free? And so they're discussing it. Well, this whale is 100 tons, huge, gigantic whale. And if, they, if the whale moves quickly, he could kill them. So who's going to get close enough to cut this net apart and allow the whale to go free? Well, eventually, four of these guys decided to do it. And so they went off their boat, and they swam up to the whale... And they began to cut the net away from the whale. And little by little, they freed the whale. And then they were afraid. What's going to happen? You know, is he going to attack us? You know, is he going to thrash around? Well, eventually what the whale did is the whale swam off. And then the whale swam back. And he swam up to each one of those four men. And he touched them with his nose. And he backed off. And he went around. And he came and he touched this one. And he did that with all four of them. He came back to say thank you. Now, did your mom fix you breakfast this morning? Did you tell her thank you? <laughs> well, it was a. <laughs> and then the brother said, Well, next week I'm going to bring you and show you a video of this story. Do you think those boys were captured by that? Just a simple story. This was out of the news. This was not even in, in the Bible. 
But the whale came back to say thank you. Well, okay, let's finish reading the outline. I'll stop. Point D. There is the need for some brothers and sisters to spend the time to prepare lessons and instructions on how to use them. Saints, we don't not only need lessons, we need instructions. We need to know how to give these kind of lessons. We might know how to teach, we might know how to give lectures, but I don't know if we know how to give these kind of lessons. So we have to make some lessons, and then we have to train the teachers, train the serving ones on how to give these kind of lessons. He says this, There's no need to compose the lesson in full. We can simply give some guidelines, such as which week to speak concerning honoring our parents, and some hints on how to illustrate this lesson. After being trained, each teacher can choose the particular illustration he will use. We should not, underline not, prepare uniform printed lessons to be read in each class. Perhaps half a point, half a page of points, illustrations and instructions is adequate. It should be easy to prepare lessons in this way. Okay, our lessons should look like this. Half a page. Okay? Honor... Parents, okay? That's the topic. Exodus twelve twenty. Honor your father and mother. Then burden to impart. One sentence. That's it. Currently we have lessons that are sometimes two pages long with ten facts to teach. That's what he said, don't do. So we can't do that. Well, as I said in Jacksonville, I don't want to burn the house down. But it might be time for us to have a reconsideration on how we, how we do this. But how good if we could come together, some brothers and sisters who, have, who know the truth, skilled in writing, as he said. We could come up with 70, 100, 200 Lessons on virtues, on character, even on the law, you know, the proper elements of the law, on, on creation, on God. It should be easy, huh? We should be able to do that. And we do it at this level, we do it at this level, we do it at this level. Let me cheat a little bit into tomorrow. We realize that for the youngest level, we're just inspiring them. For the middle level, once they get to be about seven, eight, nine, we still have to inspire them. In fact, every lesson has to be full of inspiration. But when they get to this stage, they're already beginning to experience some failures and mistakes. They want to be patient, but they can't. They want to be forgiving, but they can't. So this stage, we're not only inspiring them, we're also encouraging them. What I mean by encourage is you read them a verse from the Bible that says you have to honor your parents. The Bible says that's the word of God. You have to do it. Even though you can't, you have to do it. So they're encouraged. And then finally, in this level, we're inspiring them and we're also using it to convict them. 
tomorrow we'll get into that. So, let me show you two more things. If you go to Luke chapter 2, the verses we read tonight, and then I'll stop. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 40. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says, And the little child grew and became strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The little child being the little God-man Jesus, still a child, he grew physically and became strong in spirit. That's his divinity. And then it says he was filled with wisdom. This is his deity being manifested in him according to the proportion of his age. It wasn't like at one year old, he uh, had it all. He only had one year old's worth. And as he grew, the grace of God was manifested upon him and the wisdom I'll tell you why I like this. And then look at 52. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature, that's age and height, and the grace manifested in him before God and men. If you look at the footnote, the grace before God because he was growing in the expression of God according to God's desire, in grace before men because he was growing in the divine attributes manifested in the human virtues which were gracious to men. He was growing as a God-man before God and men. I thought, saints, this is... We realize that we're a God-man. And then we have to grow in life. And according to the measure of our growth in life, this God-man living will be manifested. And the grace of God will be manifested in us according to our maturing in life, our growth in life, according to where we are in the Lord. The last verse that I want to show you, or the last portion, is in Daniel chapter 1. In Jacksonville, we had a fellowship with the young people. In verse 4, it describes Daniel and his companions. And I really like these verses. Daniel 1.4. Describing Daniel and his companions, it says this. Children in whom was no defect, who were good in appearance, who showed insight in all wisdom, understanding in knowledge, and apprehension in thought. They had good appearance. They had a clear mind. They could understand deep thoughts. They were able to stand in the king's palace. Talk about building up humanity building up children to be proper human beings, that's what these four men were. Children, it says, proper appearance, insight. They had a clear mind. Young, we, saints, we need young people like this, growing up in the church life. Clear mind, proper humanity, uplifted, normal. They can understand deeper things. They're not superficial this is our work, to produce these kind, of, these kind of children. Eventually, they become the ones the Lord uses to change the age. 
Amen. Okay, so I'll stop here. I, still, I think there's still some time. I hope we could have some, some overflow, some fellowship. Okay?